Outside the box. Hello and welcome to this month's Outside the Box. By this month, I mean February. You may have noticed we didn't actually do one in January, but that's because Mickey and I had sort of pre-watched stuff when we did the Christmas one. And also, frankly, I couldn't be bothered. (laughs) And I was fine with that. I tried to watch a lot of stuff recently and I'm prepared to concede at the start of this that I might come across as really negative and there might just be something up with me and I'm not really enjoying stuff at the moment. But, yeah, we've got a lot to talk about and there's only a couple of them that I think I can be especially enthusiastic about. But coming up, we're going to be talking about It's a Sin, The Serpent, Staged 2. What else are we talking about, people? Oh, I I saw some of Snowpiercer, so we'll get some of that in. I saw some of... Lupin. No, Lupin. (laughs) (laughs) So we have got loads of stuff to say. Should we start with It's a Sin? If we're going to get cancelled, let's get cancelled early, eh? Um, (laughs) Russell T. Davis, five-part series on Channel 4 about the... Actually, it's not really the early days of the AIDS crisis. It's sort of in the thick of it. Between 1981 and 1991, the five episodes take place. And it follows a group of friends in their very early 20s through to, I would say, their early 30s and their experiences in the AIDS pandemic. I am going to immediately hand over to somebody else to start speaking because I think there are some good things to say about It's a Sin, so I think we should get those out of the way first. Did you enjoy it, Jen? Do you know what? I did enjoy it, but I had problems with it, which I think we'll come to. But I did I did enjoy it. I thought that it was heartbreaking. It told a story that I think a lot of people won't be very familiar with. Hannah, I know weirdly that HIV and AIDS is, is your specialist subject, but I don't, yeah. I don't, th- I don't know I don't, how that happened, but yes. <laughs> I don't think it is everyone's, it's fair to say. I saw a tweet at the weekend from the Terence Higgins Trust that said that there'd been a 4,300% rise in people Googling like a specific um, HIV and AIDS symptom, which is something that I did as well because it transpires I actually don't know a lot about the illness at all and I felt quite educated by it in that respect. felt like I knew a lot more about it by the end of it and that I should know a lot more about it given what a huge thing it has been within my lifetime. I thought that some of the characters were lovely and 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 well crafted and I think we can all agree that Colin was great exactly exactly Colin Colin is who I'm talking about of course um and Colin's mum loved Colin yes Colin's mum was adorable yeah I I did I did think there was a lot of good stuff about it Mick I I think you have some good things to say as well correct yeah I would say I'm going to start with the caveat that I'm not really a fan of Russell T Davis's writing and I've, I found years and years, which was lauded absolutely unbearable and gave up, actually. But in its defence, in It's a Sin's defence, it is a huge and incredibly complicated topic that it's trying to cover. Five parts is a really weird number. And mm. so because of the sort of scarcity of time, its focus is very much on a just one group of friends dealing with what's happening to them within the AIDS pandemic. So some of the characters are quite thinly sketched 
And I had a real issue with the guy who's supposed to be the heart of the story, which is Richie Tozer, played by Ollie Alexander. Played brilliantly. The performances across the board are absolutely yes. superb. What, what I would say is I am not saying the Emperor isn't wearing any clothes. I think it's a smart and important suit. But is it the best thing I've seen anyone wear ever? Absolutely not. And I have a real issue with episode five. Mickey, yeah. I actually have written down in my notebook. I'm not saying that the Emperor's not wearing any clothes. I'm just <laughs> saying that I can't see them. <laughs> I, I thought well, there you go. I saw lots of people on Twitter saying, you know, that it's a masterpiece and blah, blah, blah. And, and I, I don't agree it's a masterpiece. No. I think it's really, really moving. And I think sometimes people get confused. This sounds really patronising, so I'm sorry if, if it if it comes across that way I don't mean it to but I think sometimes people get confused between things being really really moving and things being really really good yeah yeah, yeah I think that's true and I think Russell T Davis is an incredible emotional manipulator mm. or a manipulator of emotions he's a very good puppet master and I sobbed my heart out for episode yeah. three which I actually think is a very 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 good episode and it it focuses on Colin who is everyone's favorite character but yeah, that that's not enough, and I think, and I'm I'm so glad it's out there. And apparently, Davis was it was turned down by the BBC and ITV before he went to Channel Four. So I think it's outrageous that it has taken this long for a mainstream channel to have a mainstream program that covers this. Agreed. But it doesn't capture the vastness of the pandemic, which I think is a shame. I'm going to jump in after Mickey and say this is where I think I can start to say stuff. I'm not a fan of Russell T. Davis, and I have long believed it's that kind of pit that he goes to, that emotional well that he's constantly trying to draw in that I find somewhat melodramatic. But the odd thing about this is, because there is actually a perfectly good cause for people to be sobbing their fucking eyes out in this, I felt that with that removed, it kind of highlighted some other things that I didn't realise were problematic in Russell T Davis stuff. One of which is, I don't think he writes very good female characters. No, not at all. No. I think Jill, who in many ways Jill needs to exist, because to write that drama without recognising that women carried a huge amount of the burden of caring during this time, it would have been wrong to do that. So Jill kind of is a cipher for that. But she and has... she's actually based on a real person as well. She's based on Jill it? Nalda, who plays Jill, the character's mum in it. Yeah. And so I see I see that it's difficult to try and get any kind of backstory. I mean, the only way that they deal with the fact that she's got no life is she makes a joke about being on the pill, but, you know, not needing it because she's not getting any sex. And she literally has thrown her entire life into this. But it gives no gratitude to her for this. Caring is something that women have seemed to be expected to do in this and the, we can all get to the point of which in episode five that I think we're really angry about, which is that eventually the burden of blame for all of this falls really mm. squarely on their mums. And there's a scene with Routine, and I like Routine, and she's great, mm. and she's great in this scene, where she basically attacks Keely Hawes for not knowing that her kid was gay, which may or may not be a fair assumption, I'm not a mother. But then she says it's our jobs as mums to think about our kids all day and all night, or words to that effect and I thought I don't expect that of women to be honest I really don't I think that's an overburden and our mothers may choose to feel that but I don't think that mothers should be expected to feel that and not and this is nothing about like the character the homophobia in in, in Keely Hawes's character it's just basically as a as a cipher for women I don't find that to be a good message for something to put across but 
while you can't review stuff based on what something isn't, the things that aren't in this, the question of why would a gay man die of AIDS in the 1980s, you know, because there was political failings, there was medical failings, there were scientific failings, there were institutional homophobia, which probably explains quite a lot of the other stuff. There was bad public messaging. There was perfectly human reactions like fear and putting your head in the sand and not wanting to know something. And because none of those things are shown in any depth, the only person that this can point the finger of blame at is Keely Hawes, is the mm. mum. And I, fa- I, I found it really objectionable, as I know you did too. Yeah, I think it's... that I, I found it... Um, Mick and I have talked about this already, and I think you and Mick have talked about this already as well, but I, I found it really... I saw it biz- first and really needed to talk to people. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> I, I found it really bizarre the way the whole thing came down to it. It was... Like, I totally, totally get what they were trying to do, and they were trying to say that the, that, that Richie... Are we allowed to spoiler this? Um, do I spoil it? Well, might as well. It seems like half the world has watched it. So, yes, let's spoiler it. So, obviously, Richie, the central character, eventually dies and Jill basically tells his mum that it's it's her fault as Hannah's just sort of alluded to and I get the point that they're trying to make about shame and about how this character in particular didn't do the things he should have done quote unquote like get tested um, because of the shame that he felt and the way that he was brought up in that shame and, and I totally understand the point of that but as you say the there are huge, huge, huge failings across the board. Why does it come down to it being her fault? Why? Why does it come down to being her fault? Also, the dad. What the fuck? He's vile the whole way through. But he does do a cry and clearly regrets it and therefore is forgiven. And it's interesting. Keely Hawes is Richie's mum and she gets the speech. But actually, there are two homophobic dads in it and two homophobic mums, and both of the dads get redemption. They do. Because Roscoe's dad, as yeah. well, comes mm. and asks his son for forgiveness, having been to Africa and seen how appallingly people with AIDS were treated. And he comes back and he asks his son's forgiveness, and, again, spoiler, but Roscoe, in the end, grants it. And yet his mum doesn't get that scene, doesn't get that warmth, doesn't get that forgiveness. We see Richie's dad reading him stories by his bedside, having made a very toxic home for a young man to grow up in, for anyone to grow mm. up in. We don't really get to know her, but Richie's sister seems quite fucked up as well. Yeah. And yet he is forgiven, whereas it all falls very squarely onto Keely Hawes. It is such a broadly complicated picture of what was going on. And yeah, I can't believe that, that the end result is... It was you, one woman, who lives on the Isle of Wight. It's way too complicated a topic for anyone to have covered. I just just bugs me that people are seeing it as a masterpiece. But if it's making people do more reading and more research and like, well, I, I mean, that would be great. Absolutely that, because there is like an absolute wealth of stuff. And I think you kind of maybe hit on a point there that I think is my, again, my biggest problem with this and that you shouldn't review stuff for what it's not. You should review it for what it is and all of that. I can go on and say that forever. But this feels very passive. And what really spoke to me, what made me really interested in this as a period of history, is that it's really active. This happened and the gay world was changed forever. And people grabbed hold of this and people were angry. People were so fucking angry 
And it was really righteous anger. And they did things and they achieved things and the world changed because of it. And I don't feel there's a sense of that in this. There's one, right? And it, it also falls into a question I have. And that question is, where are the fucking lesbians, right? Mm-hmm. Where are the lesbians who were so key to fighting this, getting communication out there? There's one that we see, and that is the lawyer who comes and talks to the, the council in Wales who have basically put Colin in prison. And it is, it's that fight that we don't get to see. And mm. yeah, that, you know, the act. Oh, yeah, that's maybe. the most interesting. That is, she's great. More of her, please. She's brilliant, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things because they're forced to by these terrible circumstances. I think I actually think the more I've thought about it and I have thought about it a lot. So, you know, that is definitely something that mostly goes in the programme's favour. I think maybe even episode three as a standalone kind of here is just a snapshot. Yeah. Works better than having a five part as a snapshot. Yeah. I mean, I understand why people are passionate about it. And I, I understand if, you know, really basic stuff. Like, you know, it was really hard to get an undertaker. Things like that, that people maybe just didn't realise that that's what life was like. And that's the first time you're learning that. I understand why you're blown away by it, because what you're being blown away is by the facts, not the TV drama. That stuff is all there, and it's true. You know, as I've said, I didn't know a huge amount about it either. But I did wonder if a lot of the people, you know, if the benchmark was really low, basically, the fact that over here there hasn't been much on TV about it. We don't, you know, we we don't talk about it that much. Mm. I wondered if people were... So it's a really positive thing, and I'm really glad it was on telly, and I absolutely applaud it. But, I mean, if people are interested, and the band plays on is just the the best book. Like, I think it's written in 1986. I mean, really in the heat of it by Randy Shields, that's a great book. There's a brilliant documentary called How to Survive a Plague, which is about the early days of ACT UP in New York. HBO have made a a drama of Larry Kramer's The Normal Heart, which you should be able to buy on some sort of streaming service. Um, It's got Mark Ruffalo in it and Jim Parsons and Matt Bomer. Because that's the other thing I thought about this. Those people didn't look very ill. Having having seen quite a lot of aid dramas, I thought the victims didn't really look very ill in this one. But um, that was just me because Matt Bomer, like, just like shed about six stone and was totally wrecked in the normal heart. Anyway, that's really good. HBO, you could probably buy Angels in America, which is the classic of the AIDS era. I can't have a conversation about this show without saying that I I didn't like Richie. And Mm. while you don't have to like a character, he's very much posited as the heart of the show and I didn't like him I I just thought I didn't get to see or I wasn't shown what his friends absolutely loved about him to the point where they would follow him anywhere and thought he was the best person in the group he was not the best person in the group and that made his confession in inverted commas at the end that he had chosen knowing he was infected to sleep with men unprotected and knowing he was passing on that infection I just yeah I just couldn't understand why no one reacted to that apart from "Eh, it's Keely Hawes's fault I mean I could understand obviously the the point of which he confesses this he's at death's door and you know maybe you're not going to massively take someone to task at at that point in you know in their circumstances in life but I, I do think as a teamic I think that it should at least have warranted some reflection. And I would think that his gay friends certainly would have had some, at the very least, mixed emotions Mm. about that. Knowing that they could easily have been in that position themselves. Yeah. It's a crime to knowingly infect someone with a deadly disease, right? 
Talking of infection, I thought there was a really odd choice that they made. I think it is the third one. In which Colin, nobody knows how Colin got infected. We see and they don't see. And I just thought it was an odd choice to show us because the best way to get us to empathise with his friends is if we also don't know. That's how you get people in that mindset of everything was so... Who knows? Do you know what I mean? People had no idea. Stuff was happening around them. And and there was, for many people, there was no answer. And it seems to me that the best way of showing that there was no answer for a lot of people was to give us no answer. But instead it did. I I get that. And I thought that I I actually I agree with that. I did think that um, one of them, one of the key things about it was that um, your vulnerability to it should have been made. Do you know what I mean? If we'd never found out how he'd how he had contracted hiv mm. then that would give a better sense of the fear around yeah, it yes. like mm-hmm. i could just get it and and not even know how and sorry i'm basically repeating what you just said <laughs> but, um, but yeah i know i absolutely reconfirming agree. I, think, I call it jen reconfirming i think that by doing that they that was a really good opportunity to sort of show the vulnerability that that you had to it and and it was unnecessary i agree Okay, so that's our thoughts. Wowzers, that's that's a lot of thoughts. Maybe we can move on to something else, which, again, here we are just shitting on dreams over here today. <laughs> something else that everybody was talking about, how great it was. Jen and I made it through two episodes, and Mickey, one. you... Oh, Jen won, me too, and Mickey, the mall. So maybe you can lead it, which is the serpent. Yeah, in fairness to Jen, I just went... Like, mate, just give up now. <laughs> just save yourself. <laughs> save yourself some time. So I'm going to keep my thoughts on the Beebs eight-parter, The Serpent, inspired by slippery and cold serial killer Charles Sobrage, fairly brief. It is the grisly tale of the notorious French con man who murdered at least 12 people between 1963 and 1976, mostly backpackers, on the hippie trail around Southeast Asia. And the action jumps, and it jumps a lot, between Sabraj committing his crimes and the pursuit that eventually brings him to justice. Taha Rahim as Sabraj and Jenna Coleman as Marie-Andre Leclerc. Wow, my French accent's really getting attested today. Say uh, Bon, Mickey. Say Trayvon. <laughs> I am basically Del Boy, a northern Del Boy. So uh, Jenna Coleman is Marie-Andre Leclerc, his partner in crime. But is she really? Yes, she is. Are both excellent although i've got to say as a side note the amount of cigarettes they had her smoking genuinely did my nutting it was constant and i didn't understand why anyway what like i don't think 1970s explains it but the performances are excellent across the board to be fair with billy howell very strong as put upon dutch diplomat herman knippenberg who is seemingly the only person working at any embassy in thailand who gives a shit about people being murdered So that timeline hopping is pretty annoying at first, but it does kind of work in building tension. That said, Hannah gave up after two episodes. Jen, I told to quit after one when it was clear she wasn't enjoying it. And it was only by accident of not being able to think of anything else to do that I saw it through to the end. Because for all its gloss and stylistically, it is really lush to look at. I I found it pretty much as cold as Sabraj himself. I just, yeah... I didn't understand the fuss about it. Time hopping was horrific, particularly since quite a lot of people seem to look like quite a lot of people in this, particularly the young girls that like the backpacker girls, they kind of have a a look and that confused me a bit. So I had to pay a lot of attention to it. And I don't mind TV that I have to pay a lot of attention to, but it has to give me something back. And I, I didn't feel like I was getting anything back at all. 
the time hopping does come into its own. It does work in building that tension as it goes along, but it is so hard to sort of just... I mean, maybe I'm a really lazy TV watcher or a bit dim, and I don't think I'm either, to be honest, but to, to get that focus and go, oh, we're there, we're there, we're there, it takes so long to get into the rhythm of that. Mm. But I guess if you told that story linearly, it wouldn't work. So it was a quite a good way around that. Yeah. Jen, anything um, to add? Not really, mate. I didn't like it. I stopped after one episode. No, nothing to contribute, really. I learned yeah. something because of it. Because obviously I thought, oh, I'm not going to watch it, but I might Google what happened to them at the end. She, I, I won't make you say her name again. We'll just say she. Marie-Andre Leclerc. <laughs> yeah, that's her. La Femme. She only has a Wikipedia page in French. Yes. So you had to translate it into English. And I learned that, it must be a French expression that when she when she died, the literal translation says she was swept away by cancer, and I thought oh, that that actually sounds like quite a nice way of saying it. Yeah, it's not quite as poetic when she gets cancer in in the program. Yeah, but, I yeah. bet. Um, I've got to say a note on the fashion, which is beautifully studied, and some of her jumpsuits are just incredible. But the cut of Raheem's trousers very much reminded me of the time my pal asked a man on the streets of Manchester wearing similarly very high-waisted trousers. Hey, mate, what size chest are them pants? Uh, I tell you what else was weird about it was seeing Damon Herriman talking in his own voice. I kept thinking, where's he putting that stupid Australian accent on? But that is actually his own voice. Yeah, I don't think I've seen him do his own voice before. Shall we take a break and then come back and talk about the other weird, wonderful selection of things that our eyeballs have fallen across? I've got a lot of positive for the second half, if any listener is feeling too jaded. <laughs> okay, welcome back. I have some things to talk about, but I thought we could be upbeat because we I think we've all watched Lupin and I think we all liked it. So, or Jen's shaking her head. Mick and I have seen it. We liked it. So let's be positive and talk about Lupin. Do you want to start or shall I start? Shall you start? I haven't actually written anything. I forgot all about it. On Netflix, it is a six-part... No, five, five, annoyingly. Five again. Five is the new six. Starring Omar Sy. Sorry. (laughs) As a prolific French cat burglar who has based his life on the novels of a French prolific cat burglar from the Victorian times called Arson Lupin. Lupin. It's very, very Sherlock. It's very caperish. It's very sort of knowing nods to the camera, which I liked, despite the fact that I don't like Sherlock, because while it is also very like Sherlock, it is also very French. Nobody does any crying or hugging each other. They just get on with it. And I found him to be an exceptionally likeable presence. He has a huge amount of swagger. I'd pretty watch Omar Sy in, uh, pretty much watch him in anything. He's just so, so engaging. And with Lupin, Lupin, I'm going to still, I'm just going to call him Lupin, sorry. I'm too northern to, to attempt my French accent again. And Lupin, even though he is, you know, he's a bad boy, he nicks things, there's always a sort of justification. So as well as being about stealing a necklace, it's also about avenging his father's suicide, which wasn't for the reasons that he's been told it was. It's very good. And even when he's nicking stuff from old French ladies, the old French ladies are saying, oh, yeah, we we got this when we were over in the Congo. The natives didn't know what they were sitting on. And so you're like, yeah, you go for it, mate. That's Mm. fine. So, yeah, he's very much the good bad guy. Yeah. The anti-hero. 
No, he's not an anti-hero. Oh. I think he's a hero hero. Oh. He's just, he's a good guy who occasionally does Hood. bad things. Yeah, he's Robin Hood. Oh, is he given to the poor then? He's um, quite poor. And, he, <laughs> and, he and he's given to himself. So yeah. in a way, yes. He does actually give to poorer people though. He does some of the stuff yeah. he steals, some of the, the diamonds that come into his possession. He does pass on to help people. The one he leaves on that wedding photograph, a really lovely touch when he yeah, goes it's really nice. the wife. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why is he poor if he's, if he's got loads of diamonds? In his possession. He's not. I was just riffing on the fact that he does he's not Robin Hood in that he's like helping people pay their taxes or you know, he's he is All right. he is he's robbing he is people that nobody gives a fuck whether they get robbed or not. Baddies. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. people he takes from are as morally compromised as him being a burglar, I guess. Can I ask you, Mickey, did you watch it with subtitles? I did. I don't like dub stuff. I prefer. No, neither do I. And I thought it'd be a good subtitles. opportunity to talk about that briefly, like, like we're going to do anything briefly in this outside the box, because the default option on Netflix is always to set it to. And I just think, like, to some dub, of the yeah. acting is just terrible in, when you watch it in the. It, I, I can't believe that some poor sod, like in Poland or whatever, is giving it their all in this drama and then this really not great acting voice is put on top of it. Yeah, I learned the hard way by watching what is an excellent series, the series Dark on Netflix, mm. but dubbed rather than subtitled. And you were just like, you could see the passion in the actor's face. And then yeah. a really flat voice actor just going, so anyway, they killed the love of my life. Yeah. Oh, they always have like a preposterously high-pitched voice or something that doesn't match. Yeah, it's so yeah. weird. Um, I would definitely recommend people go to the settings and put it on oh, the subtitles. Oh, yeah, me too. Me and too. while it does take a little bit more energy to read a TV series, I think it's definitely worth the investment. I thought it was great. It was just a really enjoyable romp. It didn't ask too much of you, but it delivered lots of like laughs and excellent action scenes and a whole load of uh, very engaging character. Big fan. Yeah. But it's watch? got the most irritating ending. Uh, yeah. It but... has also been guaranteed a second series. So I feel well, they, they, it's, they, they've done something weird with it. It's like a 10-part series, but they've split it into two five. So it's probably not a year that you'll have to wait for the next five. Did you ever watch The Returned, or as I believe it was called, Les Revenants? The, I uh, did. I really enjoyed the first series of that. But anyway, uh, the second series was a bit weird. But... The point being that I enjoyed watching it because uh, it made me think that I could understand French when they were like, the leg pub. Um, <laughs> <laughs> everything else was in French and then just the leg pub. And I'd be like, oh, I know what. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know that. No, it's because it's English. You twat. It, it's literally said <laughs> the leg pub. Yeah, yeah, I watched another subtitle series, which I'll talk about when Hannah tells me I'm allowed to. And it was a similar thing. I was like, oh, I know what that means without reading. Oh, it's because it's just an English word yeah, that they, they've said in their accent. <laughs> Borgen, Borgen, she went to England for an episode and I was just, suddenly I was like, fuck, I can understand Danish. I've obviously watched enough of this that it's well, all it, gone in. Yeah, the, the, the programme I watched was by one of the writers on Borgen. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, let's move on. I watched some Snowpiercer. Now, I only bring this up because do you remember well two reasons Number i'm not one, quite sure what you're saying in in fairness snow piercer snow piercer now like someone you, who pierces the snow i'm gonna get to it sorry now, do you remember when we were watching disaster films and we were running out towards the end and i said i found one about a train that goes around like an apocalyptic arctic world you don't remember that turns out was a film right now is a television series 
And I kind of got tricked into watching it because I, I thought that, that Sean Bean was in the first series and he's not. And so I was like, went in for a bit of Sean Bean. Um, and I also was led to believe it was weekly, but there was a whole series I had to watch before she, Sean Bean turned up. And I don't know why I'm still watching it because it's really stupid. And you know me, my brain gets so fixated on logistics of stuff that something that's set entirely on a train, I'm like, well, how did they get from there to there? How can there be an underneath? And stuff like that. I just don't understand it. Anyway, Jennifer Connolly, David Dix, who is the first time I've ever seen him not be doing a right take on a historical character. And it took a bit of getting used to for him playing the everyman. Uh, Sean Bean, eventually... And it's all really daft, but right in the middle of it, and this is why I bring it up, Alison Wright giving the most, um, just another absolutely fucking spot-on performance. And Alison Wright is, I'm going to say what she's most famous for, and that's still not going to make people know her, but she is Martha in The Americans, and she is actually from Middlesbrough, and is just fucking cracking in this. And I really, really hope that when theatres come back at some point in my life, she comes and does something that I can go and see her in, because I think she's brilliant. Anyway, Snowpiercer, that's why I brought it up. Could you spell it for me? S N O W P I E R C E R. Yeah, it sounds ridiculous. So like Doesn't it? It's piercing so, it's... rather than like piercing yeah. your ear. Okay. No, piercing as no, in like piercing, piercing the snow. What's the difference between piercing and piercing? <laughs> anyway, it's not pissing, it's the important point. Who has something to talk to me about that's on Netflix while we're on Netflix? I have nothing on Netflix. Okay, so have I got anything else on Netflix? Oh, yeah, I should also probably mention I watched Bridgerton when I was quite low over Christmas. How are you feeling? It was awful. Mm. And everybody on social media seemed to think it was amazing. And therefore, I will just leave it at I didn't think it was amazing. Okay, Mick, what have you got to talk about? I have a choice for you. I can either... I'm going to talk about both of them at some point. So you can either have A Perfect Planet first, monkeys, or you can have The Investigation, murder. Uh, Let's have monkeys. Monkeys or murder? Monkeys. Monkeys. Okay, so A Perfect Planet is on BBC One, but you can watch it on the iPlayer. And yes, yes, it is another Sir David Attenborough documentary. But to be honest, he keeps making them. I keep lapping them up like a thirsty cheetah at a long-trekked full-water hole. Oh, wait, that's from a different nature programme, also on the BBC, but fronted by Gordon Buchanan. And that one's called Cheetah Family and Me, also worth the watch. I guess my point is that it would be too easy for nature programmes to feel a bit samey. And while for me, the wonder of nature being an utter bastard and, for instance, making the only place a certain iguana can lay its eggs a volcano's crater reach down a perilous cliff edge, combined with incredible camera work, planning and patience to get those shots, will never be boring... I imagine some people need a bit more impetus to watch AEN or the nature programme. Which is why the makers keep coming up with ever more inventive reasons to explore what nature's up to. So four episodes out of five of A Perfect Planet look at what makes Earth so abundant with life. Volcanoes, sun, weather and oceans. And how all the different animals interact with that. The fifth is called humans and focuses on how we're massively fucking it up but as ever and this is crucial there is hope we could reverse this mess and save the planet and there's quite a lot of focus on various excellent projects that are doing just that which were some of my highlights of this excellent series those and the vampire finches sorry what no thanks no get away from me Mm. yep 
The defund the BBC mob on Twitter didn't like it so much. Oh, they're always fucking preaching to me, preaching to me. Can't even watch monkeys anymore without getting a lecture about how we're all killing the monkeys. I just want to watch monkeys while rubbing asbestos into the ground. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. fuck them. Um, yeah, basically. While we're on BBC, I watched the second series of Staged, which is six... 15-minute episodes that are available on the iPlayer. Neither of you watched the first stage, did you? No, it's up for quite a few globes, though, right? I wouldn't go as far to say as it's brilliant, but it is really inventive. And I think it deserves credit for doing something that makes it memorable during a time when so few people have been able to make things creatively. Mm -hmm. I mean, people have made things creatively because they're filming stuff, and they're filming stuff in a really restrictive way. But to actually say, how about we try and make a television programme from our houses and have it work, I think is really impressive. I mean, obviously, if you haven't seen the first one, they're really short. They're like 15 minutes long each, the episodes. It's the first one in which David Tennant and Michael Sheen were rehearsing for a play. And the second one, the second series opens with the idea that the first one was actually a television series. And this is now a behind the scenes thing about what Uh happens when that television series got popular. Right. So it's very meta. It also means it couldn't possibly do a third series, really. And let's hope, fingers crossed, they don't have to make a third series because they'll be back filming other stuff. Cast is incredible in this. And by the cast, I mean the cameos. Obviously, Tennant and Sheen's partners um, are both in it also Whoopi Goldberg and Ben Swartz play the agent and the agent's assistant and they are the only people that are actually playing characters in this Ben Swartz is particularly hilarious do you know who he is Parks and Recreation he's in that he's Jean god what's his name he's Tom's best friend I've got my own Ron Swanson right here but then there's just a, just an amazing scattering of people. Michael Palin, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, Ramesh Ranganathan, Kate Blanchett. It's just loads of great people in this. What I think is most impressive about it is, I think it's probably the most significant effort somebody's put into like destroying their off-screen persona that David huh? Tennant is doing since Steve Coogan last played himself. I mean, it is just insane. Sheen is funny because he's just got a bit off. He's got a bit mad and he's a bit off kilter. But David Tennant is just horrible to himself in this. And it's really, really enjoyable to watch. He permeates it so much. His neurosis is throughout this series that they actually put a scene in that's really funny in which Georgia Tennant, David Tennant's wife, is talking to another woman on a Zoom call. And uh, they're having a conversation. And then Georgia Tennant says to her, do you know what the Bechtel test is? And uh, the other woman said no. And she explains what the Bechtel test is to her. And the other woman said, why do you bring that up? And just in the background, you hear David Tennant going, Georgia, I can't find it. <laughs> it's actually a really, really funny joke. So it probably, it doesn't pass the Bechtel test, but I don't think it needs to. Jen. What have I watched? Um, brace yourselves, guys. I've spent my time the little time I have available watching um, two ITV cop dramas yes two (laughs) and one of which I have good things to say about one of which I have not great things to say about I have watched the third series of Marcella which uh, I think is is, Anna Friel isn't it 
Yeah, I think it's playing out week by week, but I binged the whole lot on Wasn't the... Wasn't that the thing that everyone said had the worst ending, like, ever, 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 ever? She, in the la- at the end of the last series, sorry if you haven't watched series two, at the end of the last series, she gave herself a Chelsea smile for reasons I, I still don't understand. <laughs> and and cut all her hair ITV, off. Jen. To go uh, like... Was she in lockdown? Just bored. She, <laughs> she was in some sort of trouble. I forget the details of series two, if I'm honest, but she'd gotten herself in a bit of a pickle. I wish I could remember how my friend John described it, but he was like, she's very much um, to like procedural, like police procedures, what Dr. Foster was to the medical profession. Like, <laughs> she, she is not playing by the book. Um, it's really unrealistic. It's really silly. The first series I actually thought was quite good. Um, I've seen the first series and thought it was good. Dee's, I think she's Detective Inspector Marcella Backland. Um, she is, as you know, she's a policewoman and she has this funny kind of medical condition where she has blackouts and she sometimes does incredibly violent things, um, seemingly with, with no explanation. And her young baby died some time ago and, and there's some all sorts of like mental horrors going on there, which are further explained throughout the series. But then at the end of series two, she gets herself in a bit of a pickle ends up being picked up uh, at the end by Hugo Spear, who wants her to go undercover. She's presumed dead. They've somehow placed her DNA <laughs> somewhere I'm, else. Sorry, I'm just just the, the, the funniness of giving herself a Chelsea smile being described by Jenna gets herself in a bit of a pickle. <laughs> I don't know why she does it. I still don't know why she did it. I still don't know. She had a but funny she's, day. She's um, got like a bit of a scar in the right. third series, but... It, there's not a lot going on there. It's not as bad as, as you'd think it might be. Anyway, she's gone undercover in Belfast. Fuck knows why. And she's on the case of these cri- this criminal mobster family headed by Amanda Burton. She's got all sorts of horrible children. There's all, it's utterly, utterly ridiculous. And, and there's yet... Some- there's some fantastic like shots of Amanda Burton's garden, which is kind of like this big-ass stately home somewhere because they've made a lot of money through Skullduggery. And there's these brilliant like <laughs> haunting shots of some stone lion statues looking like... Uh, uh, <laughs> looking menacing. Uh, I think what... It's not very subtle imagery of Marcella entering the lion's den, guys. Um, it's fucking stupid. Did I Sounds enjoy like it? A- I'm a horror film. <laughs> it's, it was it was utterly ridiculous. I I don't know if I enjoyed it or not, but like if you've got time to kill, which you do, frankly, let's face it, <laughs> you could watch it and laugh a bit. I like the idea of someone showing you round their really massive house and you being a bit like, "Wow, this house is really massive," and then just sort of going, "Yeah, I made a shit ton of money through Skullduggery." <laughs> <laughs> A lot of stuff that. going on. It's it's utterly ridiculous. The other one that I've watched, I've, again, I think it's happening week by week, but I've been binging it. Is the second series of The Bay, which is another detective um, ITV detective series. I thought the first series was really good. Actually, I'm enjoying the second series. They've done something that I can't forgive them for, which I, I won't tell you what it is, but um, it made me upset when I saw it. Anyway, um, the main character is played by Morven Christie. I think Ooh, I she's like really Morven good Christie. in it. She's great. And um, also the brilliant, or I think she's brilliant, better known as Carol Jackson. Lindsay Coulston is in it, and, and I just think she's fucking yeah, she's great. Cracking. And uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it. 
is what I will tell you about it. And I actually think it's good as well, unlike my channel. Yeah. Agreed. I think Morgan Christie's excellent. She's so good in the A word. She's really good. Is there anything can else? I, can I take you back to the BBC? Yeah. <laughs> away yeah, from my TV? No, <laughs> never. Well, I'm going to take Hannah away from my okay. TV because she wasn't ever allowed to watch it in her. Yeah, I would just like to make it me. really clear that, that, that we don't force Jen to be our ITV correspondent. <laughs> no, is, I just can't help myself. She chooses. She gets herself into her own pickles, I'll yeah, put it that way. I'm going to take you to The Investigation, which was on BBC Two, but is available on iPlayer. And it is a six-part true crime drama about the 2017 murder of 30-year-old Swedish journalist Kim Wall, known in the media as The Submarine Case. And it is oh, superb. Yeah. So Danish writer-director Tobias Lindholm has made... An incredibly accomplished, morally complex drama that firmly puts the focus on the victim, her loved ones, and the ins and outs of the investigation. In fact, I actually had to look up the name of Kim Wall's murderer, as he, Peter Madsen, isn't named. He's given relatively little attention and is never on screen. And that means there's no chance for grandstanding, trying to understand his why, his reasons, or eliciting any sympathy for the murderer. All of which is way more refreshing than it should be. The whole series is never rushed and that means we feel the forces, the, the investigative forces stress of trying to beat the clock of how long Madison can be held for murder without sufficient evidence for a definite conviction. They're scrabbling to prove beyond doubt that he took Kim Wall out on his midget submarine, murdered her, dismembered her and threw her body parts out to sea, which they know, but is all very hard to get concrete proof on. So it's basically a how done it rather than a who done it. It's all tension rather than fireworks. And I found that watching it, I was very much replicating the furrowed brow of Jens Moller, chief of homicide in Copenhagen and brilliantly portrayed by Soren Malling. And it's just incredible television. It's, uh, I mean, I guess I find Scandi Noir always a cracking watch. Yeah, um, and Sarah Mallon in particular, he's in so much good stuff because he, of course, was um, Sarah's first partner in The Killing. Yes, yeah. And Tobias Lindholm was a writer on Borgen and it's, it's the same sort of sensibilities. I think, I think you'd both thoroughly enjoy it, although, Jen, I know, obviously, attention-wise, you would have to read it as well as watch it and that can be tricky. It certainly can for me, yes. <laughs> I mean, I mean, because you've got a baby rather than because you're an idiot. tired and my eyes are fucked. <laughs> it's so, so good. It's so good. Okay, I've got a couple more things to say. I did watch one episode of The Stand, which is available on Amazon. The Stand, famously, Stephen King's absolutely best book, which is interesting because it's sort of agreed on by people who like Stephen King and who don't like Stephen King as well. Everybody thinks The Stand is great. Have you, either of you read it? What is no. The Stand? I don't read horror stories. Uh, it's like a post-apocalyptic tale of when a flu, like oh shit, wipes out oh, the vast no. majority of the population oh, don't, and don't what happens <laughs> in the aftermath. It's actually, I probably read it like probably 30 years ago. It's actually a really good book. Famously, it has been filmed before, famously considered unfilmable. A new series has been made. I watched the first episode of it. I don't know what the fuck they've done with it. The time structure is all over the place. They've got great people in it, even great people doing little cameos like J.K. Simmons is in it briefly. Oh, I just, love him. Just did not work for me. So I got one episode through that and I thought, no, thank you very much. 
what I have watched, which is brilliant, which isn't on yet, I don't know what the air date is, but it's likely to be soon to keep your eye out, is Blitz Spirit, which is Lucy Worsley's new documentary for the BBC, which is fucking incredible. And I've spoken to Lucy about that, and that interview will be coming up. And also, David Baddiel has a book out this week, which which is called Jews Don't Count. It was out last week because I own it already. Okay, just to say that the documentary he made for the BBC last year about anti-Semitism is still up on the iPlayer currently, probably because it was shown again on Holocaust Memorial Day or put up around that time. So if people didn't watch that and want to watch that, that's also an interesting watch. So that's something else. I think I've run out of talking. There's loads of excellent clothes that you can see on television without watching any emperors. Yeah. Hannah Dunleavy's Outside the Box.